Matthew 1. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Backtrack to Genesis 38. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution and as a result is now pregnant. Judah said, Bring her out and have her burned to death. And she was being brought out. She sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these. And said, See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized him and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shiloh. Simply because you'll be more successful, would you stand with me? Silent night, holy night, all is calm. What a beautiful song and what a beautiful sentence. Sleep in heavenly peace. I want to introduce you to, we might say it this way, the women in Jesus' life. Five of the women in this picture are mentioned, as Wes pointed out, in Matthew's genealogy, the way he starts the story of Jesus. In fact, Matthew will almost tie it back to the beginning of the whole of God's story because what he says is this is the genesis of Jesus the Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, and then he begins the process of a genealogy. Yes, Matthew only includes the five women, but I would say very much by inference, when he says Genesis, he points back to one more woman, that is Eve. I am really thankful to be surrounded by artistic people, many of them here in this congregation, but this is a piece of art that I noticed actually earlier this year made by a cousin of mine. Her name is Karen Smith, and she lives in Central Texas. And I not only convinced her to let us use this image for this sermon series digitally, uh, but she has graciously um, painted, uh, not, it wasn't the first one she painted, but an exact comp copy by her hand. It's not a copy. If you'd like to see the original... Uh, you can come down front, it's on display here, and you'd be more than welcome to take a look. It is blessed me to reflect on how she has identified these worthy women who Matthew found it important to mention. But one of the ideas that sticks out the most from Matthew's genealogy is that the women are completely unexpected. They don't enter into most genealogies. In fact, when you heard Wes reading, you kind of heard these familiar names. Abraham was the father of? 
Abraham was the father of Isaac. You can say it with, I know the people online said it out loud. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, who was the father of the twelve, including Judah. But immediately, you stop short, because you're not expecting the next name that comes. These names that are included are unexpected for a lot of reasons. First of all, we've already mentioned they're not traditionally what you would include in a genealogy. When Je- and all good Jews at Jesus' day had a very accurate genealogy of their family. They wanted to trace the purity of their line all the way back, particularly to uh, when the country went into exile, all the way back and then wherever they could go from there. But particularly to the exile, it was important to have this clean list. And if you've read Nehemiah and Ezra, you can understand why. Because one of their main concerns was the way that in exile, the people had begun to marry with the other peoples around them, with foreigners, and they were concerned about that. It's an interesting concern. And Matthew seems to actually object to that concern. Is it so much that the genealogy traditionally would be interrupted by blood that's not Jewish? Or is it more a concern, and I think Matthew puts this forward, that the genealogy would be interrupted by people who do not follow and trust God? So it's interrupted traditionally, it's interrupted ethnically. Maybe Bathsheba was, who will be one of the women we'll talk about, maybe she was a Jew, but she married a Hittite, and in marrying the Hittite, There was no longer a purity of the race. But everybody else, other than Mary, the last name on the list, are foreigners. They are ethnically diverse. And I think our bigger concern, and if you don't know the story of Tamar before you came today, uh, you're going to learn that the bigger problem with these people is what we might call moral questions. How in the world does this person make it into a list? Oh my goodness, if there were traditional people who want everything to be exactly right, they would all have, when they began to read Matthew's gospel, going, wait a minute, that's supposed to be Sarah, he mentioned. That's supposed to be Rebecca, he mentioned. That's supposed to be Rachel, he mentions, not Tamar. Their story affirms that even I, even you, can be a part of God's epic story of love and redemption through Jesus Christ. So how do their stories, the stories of these women, whom most Jews of Jesus' day would have wanted to keep hidden, how do they, in reality, illuminate the story of Jesus? Last week, I appreciate Peter getting us started in this series and, and talking about Eve and the way, in reality, the idea of the Son of God coming as a product of Eve, as a product of humans, as a product, particularly, of the sin that so besets the human race. And yet, that is half of the story of Jesus. This week, we take a closer look at a woman named Tamar. Now, if you're from West Texas, it's Tamar. And if you're not from West Texas, it still might be Tamar. But I think, actually, Hebrew would give us a little bit more appropriate pronunciation of Tamar. Say it together. Tamar. Very good. Put that emphasis on that last syllable. Her story is found in Genesis 38. It's in the middle of what you might call the the Joseph story. 
Joseph's story starts basically in chapter 37 and will carry on through the end of the end of the book of Genesis. But what we need to understand is it's less about Joseph's story and more about Jacob's story. The story of Jacob and how his children impact the way God is going to use him to move God's purpose of carrying the seed of Abraham as a blessing to the whole world. In fact, I'd make this point, that the story of Joseph begins with Jacob, and the story of Joseph, before it's done, in chapter 50, is about Jacob coming to Egypt, or his bones coming to Egypt, and him coming to be with his children there in Egypt. They tie together. Let's look at the story of Tamar, and it's a long chapter, so I'm going to try to summarize it as best I can. In verse 1, it says about that time Judah left home and moved to Adullam. And what you need to know is if he moved away from the tents of his family, he's moving out of the family. Now, he's not, by the way, the first person to leave the family because in the previous chapter, Joseph has left the family, but not of his own choice, you may remember. And it may even have been that it was because of the conflict and the mourning and the grieving that Jacob was doing over the loss of Joseph that Judah may have said, I've had enough of this, I'm going elsewhere. And to a certain extent, we're supposed to question whether God can continue his promise through Abraham if all these brothers keep leaving. Now, you know the end of the story, so you're not worried about But the first reader would have asked that kind of question. In verse 6, the story continues, and Judah will marry his own foreign wife, but then he arranges for his first son, Ur, and in his other two sons to marry young women who are not of Abraham's lineage. Uh, if you'll remember, uh, it was very important that they send a servant. Abraham sent a servant back to kind of some of his home ground so that he could have a pure marriage for Isaac. And again, it is Jacob who seeks out uh, a person related to the family. And so it is Judah who is breaking this process and adding to what, uh, at least to this point in the story, seems to be something that's very important, that we stay in the family, the family that God has blessed. He marries a foreigner and he marries his sons to former foreigners. And Tamar is the first name of the daughters who will marry of the daughters in law who will marry his sons. But verse 7 and verse 10 will put brackets around a story about why God is not pleased with either Judah or his sons. And it's hard to know exactly. Ur and Onan, his first two sons, were wicked. They were wicked men in the Lord's sight. So the Lord, and this is very unusual language, the Lord took their life. There are times when the Lord will uh, cause defeat to come on whole nations or groups of people. There are language of God kind of moving people away in a different direction from his own people. And oftentimes that includes their deaths. But the idea that a single person is singled out is a very unusual thing. Uh, you may even remember back to Cain and his sin. God doesn't kill Cain in that process. In fact, what God does, he says, yes, you've committed a sin. Yes, you don't get to be with your regular people, but I'm going to be sure you're protected. It is more along the lines of being unusual that it is Eli 
who Samuel will follow, whose sons are wicked, and we get great detail about all that Eli's son's doing to be wicked, but God says they're not individually going to be your heirs. Instead, he puts Samuel in their place, a young man who will follow God. Verses 7 and 10 also include a very unusual idea. I will leave it to parents to read this story with their children, and uh, you can work through the details of that in any way that you'd want to. But it's a very unusual idea that God would put them to death. But before you're done with the scriptures, you recognize that they are not doing things that are in keeping with what God intended. That is to say that if a brother's wife, if a brother dies while he's married, that the next brother is intended to create an heir for him. This is very foreign to us. Let's make no mistakes. And in fact, if we go far enough into Middle Eastern history, if you lose all the brothers, it actually falls back on, although this is not a part of Jewish scripture, Middle Eastern cultures will even say that it is the father's duty to produce the next heir. So what they're being asked to do is very much in keeping with what God's pattern had been to that point. And particularly, it was in keeping of what Judah the father and Jacob the grandfather would have expected his son and sons to do. Verse 11, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, You've already killed two of my sons, so go back to your parents' home and remain a widow. I'm not going to risk any more sons to you. They've all died. Now, what we know from the story is that the sons, that, that Tamar, Tamar, mm, Tamar is not the problem. The problem is the sons. But as is not unusual, uh, the, the father figure is a little bit blind to all the things that are going on. Judah's decision is explained because he doesn't want to give his third son, Shelah, to Tamar. And what is also explained very clearly, if you look at the context of the text, is he is the one who's not doing the right thing. The story continues in verse 13 as Judah is widowed and he goes to shear his sheep. Someone told Tamar, look, your father-in-law is going to Timnah. And Tamar changed out of her widow's clothing and covered herself with a veil to describe herself. Now, if you read the text, what you're going to discover is a lot of language about harlots and prostitutes and even a, a unique statement called a cult prostitute or a, an oracle prostitute, depending on your translation. But in reality, all of those observations are outside observations. They are not that this is what she intended to do. It's just that she describes herself. It is she disguises herself. And by the way... Being someone who would disguise herself puts her right in keeping. To a certain extent, she is more Jacob's child than she is Judah's child. Jacob, who will win the birthright from his father by being disguised. Jacob, who will do all kinds of interesting things with the sheep to be sure that his herd continues to grow. And of course, Jacob the victim, when he takes the veil off the young woman that he's married the night before and says... It's Leah, not Rachel. She is a child, not of her father and not of her people. She is a child, the way we're reading the story of Jacob himself. 
she will disguise herself. Verse 16. Judah can't say this easily in any other way. As a widower comes to town, there's a single woman sitting out in a place that she ought not be. He propositions her. She says, what will you pay to have sex with me? He says, I'll give you a young lamb. She says, give it to me. And he says, I don't have it. What will you take? And this is where the conversation becomes very interesting. Because what we recognize in it is that Judah, she says, leave me your identification seal and its cord and the walking stick you are carrying. All three of these things are things that would be like the way you carry your driver's license. In fact, all three of these things might even be the same way in which you might carry a credit card. This is identity theft. And he is a willing participant in saying, yes, you can have my seal, which would have been on a cord. And one might could claim that somebody had stolen the seal, except that the cord was unbroken, so he received the cord and the seal. The seal is like his signature, soft piece of clay. You take the seal, you roll it across it. It says Judah, doesn't say Judah, but you get the picture, a picture that uh, like a brand that would say this is mine and his staff that would have been carved in a very special way, probably given to him as a child and he grew up with it and it would have had markings on it that clearly identified it as Judah's. And in many ways, it's thought that you would separate the herd by understanding whose sheep were by whose staff. So she asked him, I want your identity. And what breaks our heart is that he's so ready to give it up. Because it isn't just that he's willing to let go of his credit card and his driver's license. It's that he's willing to let go of his family. I'm not sure I can ever be a part of that. I'm not sure I can ever be a part of what God is doing with them. He knew the stories of his father and his grandfather, his grandfather and his father, and he knew that God was doing something special with them, and he said, it doesn't matter to me anymore. I'm not part of the story. The story continues, and we skip all the way down to verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has acted like a prostitute. Again, hear the description. She's becoming one. She's acted like one. And how did he know she acted like? He sent her home to be a widow, not to marry anyone. He had gotten no notice that she had found someone she wanted to marry. He hadn't given her to his son, Shelah. And if she's pregnant, she's had relationships with a man. And now, because of this, she's pregnant. Bring her out and let her be burned, Judah demanded. And you might say, wow, that's harsh treatment for a prostitute, except what this is, harsh treatment, but it's for adultery. It's about breaking the covenant with his own family and his own son, which he is equally guilty of. Verse 25, she will be brought out. And in this incredible act of courage and in this incredible act of having a voice as a woman at this time, Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? And in verse 26, Judah recognized him immediately. And as Wes read earlier, she is more righteous than I. What a risk. What incredible courage. 
not only on the part of Tamar to, say, to put her own life at risk in the way that she did, but understand the risk and courage it took for Judah to say, I'm the one who stands condemned. It's kind of interesting that this story occurs as a foreshadowing almost of the way David will be confronted about his sin with Uriah and Uriah's wife, as Matthew will refer to her. And Nathan will confront him and say, you are the man. He doesn't argue. He doesn't push back. He repents. Maybe he's heard the story of his great, 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 several more grandfather. What a risk. What courage. So what can we learn from Tamar's story? What can we learn both for how we see Jesus' ministry and how Matthew will say, look at these women and you're going to see some reflections of what Jesus will become. But also, I think we have things to learn for ourselves. First of all, the story of Tamar is an unexpected source. And it's interesting that we step into the story of God so often and we say, where did that come from? How did that happen? But in our own lives, we often step back and say, where did that come from? Why do we continue to be surprised the way God can use the most unusual circumstances and so often some of our greatest struggles to bring about his greater good? You see, Jesus didn't come from Jerusalem. Jesus didn't come from the seat of, of teachers, the Pharisees. Jesus didn't come from the rich and powerful Sadducees. Jesus didn't come as one of the hereditary priests that would have been in line to be the great high priest in Jerusalem and said Jesus comes from Bethlehem and Jesus comes from Nazareth and Jesus comes from Galilee. And it almost seems that that unexpected source is one of the biggest stumbling blocks to people who want to hear his story. Maybe there are stories, maybe there are things about the Jesus story that cause you to kind of, eh, what can I do in here? In the first century, it was the idea that he would lay his life down on a cross that caused so many to stumble. But it is always the way God works to come at us from a direction that we're not expecting, to bring something into our life that we, we can't see connected to God's good, and yet it is through those things that he produces a greater good. Unexpected source, unexpected courage. I've already mentioned courage. Courage to take a risk. Courage to take a leap. And so often, isn't that exactly what faith is? We like to wrap faith up in this nice, neat little package and say, if you do all the right things, you're being faithful. If you, if you never make a mistake, you're being faithful. Sometimes... The most difficult thing in the process of being faithful is having done something wrong is to admit it. Sometimes the hardest part about faith is saying, you know what, my life is going to be more difficult if I trust God in doing what he asked me to do and I take the leap, the courageous leap of faith, the risk to step into what he's really called me to be about and discover that it is in that place of risk, of leaping, of courage that our faith grows more than it does anywhere else. An unexpected source, an unexpected courage, and finally, 
as you already know, an unexpected outcome. Have you ever looked back at your life and said, only with God? Maybe you've the phrase that I use so often, only by the grace of God. We see our lives, we see our lives raising our children. We see so many little moments where you think, wow, we didn't know enough to know to go this way as opposed to that way. And yet what we stand back and look and say is, wow, God. The most unexpected outcomes will always be situations that don't seem to be able to produce any good, and yet God brings good out of them. Struggles that seem to, we think, might take us all the way down. And it is God who steps in, and we only get to say, the only way we got to this place is because God carried us there. It's not because I'm skillful enough, not because I'm smart enough, and by the way, not because I'm good enough, but because God is God that I am here today, only with God. And maybe we can emphasize that, especially with God. If you haven't yet read the end of the chapter, let's just hear these words because they point us to where Matthew 1 will go, starting with verse 27. When the time of her delivery came, there were twins in her womb. Sound familiar? While she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and bound his hand with a crimson thread, saying, This one came out first, but just then he drew back his hand. Sounding familiar? Jacob? Esau? Just then he drew back his hand, and came, out came his brother. She said, What a breach you have made for yourself. You've broken protocol. Your brother came first, and yet you pulled him back in, and then you came up. You've messed things up. Unless, of course, God has a hand. Therefore, he was named Perez. And afterward, his brother came out with the crimson thread. Probably the name Zera, brilliant or crimson, is why his name is Zera. Both the genealogy in Ruth chapter 4, if you want to flip a few pages forward. And, of course, the genealogy that Matthew writes for Jesus himself affirms that it is not... Zara, the quote, firstborn, but instead Perez, who God will use to carry the lineage of promise forward. This is not a story that where we, our lesson we're supposed to learn is the ends justify the means. The only person who will ever act in that role will be God, who sees a vision greater than our own, and is the only one that we can trust with the idea, well, I'm going to do something wrong because I think it's going to wind up somewhere well. God is the only one who says things like that. Not that he would ever do anything sinful, not that he would ever do anything harmful, but what he does is takes us on circuitous routes to wind up where he wants us to be. And this is not a story about taking risk with your sexuality. Please don't hear that. It is a story about tenacity, about being someone who works against all odds, about being someone who says, I'm not going to give up. I would have to ask the question, what is causing you, or maybe you at home, to want to give up? Aren't we thankful that Jesus never gave up? It didn't matter how the people didn't understand him. It didn't matter how often the disciples failed. It didn't matter how much he would have to go through to get to the cross. He did it. 
Tamar's example points us to the kind of tenacious faith that it seems over and over God wants to bless. So you're invited. You're invited to take the courageous next step in following Jesus. He is the one whose love for you and desire for peace on earth could not, has not, and will not be stopped. If you need to respond to the invitation today, you're welcome to come forward. You're welcome to just talk to the people nearby before you leave. We have elders here who would be glad to visit with you. If you're online, you're welcome to send a message to that text that you see displayed, and we would be glad to get back to you and continue the conversation. Won't you come to a realization that God wants to do something incredible with you, but it'll not be simply by joining the next dot. It will be taking a risk, a leap of faith that he'll get us there. Won't you stand and sing? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases.